Hey everyone, and welcome to the Flatlining Podcast from Fulcrum Strategies. I'm Matthew Handley, and with me is our president and CEO, Ron Howergan. Ron, how are you, sir? I am good, thank you. Today, we're going to be talking about something that we have heard a lot about uh, from our clients, particularly emergency medicine physicians, radiologists, and anesthesiologists. And that, of course, is the new CMS guidance relating to the No Surprises Act. And of course, this follows the last ruling in the Texas Medical Association cases uh, when the previous guidance was uh, thrown out. And uh, we've been waiting for the new guidance to be published, and it was last week. And I think, Ron, it's uh, fair to say that we were woefully unimpressed by this guidance uh, because of, of, of some of its things. So we're going to talk about it, and, and let's go through the summary and the FAQs that the uh, that the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services published. Uh, what What is new and what is the same in this guidance from the previous guidances? Well, so the previous guidance and the one that the whole lawsuit was built around happened back in July of 2021, where basically CMS came out with some guidance, some rules about how to calculate these qualifying payment amounts. Um, and unfortunately, those rules were very much in contrary or conflict with the actual letter of the law. And that's what led TMA to sue in federal court to basically say that CMS doesn't have the authority to change a law. They can interpret laws, they can provide additional details, but they can't just blatantly ignore a law. So that's what the whole um, lawsuit was about. And the judge agreed. And in that agreement, the judge basically threw out the July 2021 guidance and said it doesn't exist because it doesn't um, match the law. And Judge Conodal asked CMS to produce new guidance that did comply with the federal law. Mm -hmm. um, and last week we got their response to that, which as you correctly put, we were woefully unimpressed with because they appeared to ignore the judge um, and continue down the path of wanting to change what the No Surprises Act actually says. Mm-hmm. That that was right into my into my next question is, is does it, and it seems you've answered it. It doesn't appear to abide by Judge Kernodle's uh, ruling in the TMA three case, does it? No, I I don't think it does. I don't think the judge would think it does. Now they they try to get a little cute in their response. Um, you know, the judge asked them to issue new guidance, and they basically in one part of it said, "Well, we're not going to do that." But then so that they can act compliant, they said, well, we're not going to do that. It's up to the payers to, and I think their language was um, to, um, let me find it here. Yeah, they said it was up to the payers um, to calculate QPAs using a good faith, reasonable interpretation of the applicable statutes and regulations. So basically I said, we're not going to give them guidance. So it's, it's the payer's issue. They need to do it. And they need to follow their reasonable interpretation of, of the law, um, which is a little bit like the fox guarding get the hen house. Right. Um, not, a, not a great thing to do. Um, have we seen since any of the, uh, or have you seen, I guess, with your clients, since the TMA3 decision, any changes in the QPAs, um, that you've been seeing from clients or any changes in attitudes from the payers? And what do you think will change after this guidance that isn't really guidance, as they've said? 
Well, um, we haven't seen any change in the QPA calculations, um, but that was a little bit to be expected until we got this new guidance. Now, for a period of time while we were in this limbo, if you will, we did see some payers start to come to the table and negotiate a little bit better. And I, I think, um, it's my assessment, that that's because they thought that they were going to lose this whole QPA battle um, and that it was better for them to negotiate. Well, now that CMS is saying, we're going to trust you to implement it, and, and even worse, later in their FQ, FAQs, they say, oh, and, and if you can't do it, if it's just too hard for you to recalculate these, don't worry, we're not going to enforce any penalties for at least the next six months and maybe the next year. Mm -hmm. um, in, in typical government speak, they said they're going to use their enforcement discretion to choose not to enforce it. Right. So with that, I, I don't expect the payers to negotiate effectively now because they don't have to. Right. Um, I was talking to somebody and I said, it, you know, to me, this feels a little bit like um, if the IRS said to Wesley Snipes, hey, tell you what, mm -hmm. why don't you just send us in what taxes you think you owe us? We're not really going to audit you, but don't worry. Even if you're wrong, we're not going to enforce the tax penalties. I mean, that's right. a, a wonderful way to conduct business. Yeah, there's, there's no incentive to get it done right when that's no, the case. absolutely not. Uh, to, th to throw in another topic that's a little bit uh, similar in, in cases of DHS not former, uh, excuse me, HHS not uh, – uh, enforcing some of the laws around the books. We can look at uh, Javier Becerra's own words when it came to the hospital price transparency rules, because he even said that they were uh, they, they were relying on other people to enforce it and not themselves. Uh, you know, I guess the question is, is, and I've heard this from some of my clients, is why, why is CMS and HHS putting up such a fight to implement and enforce this particular law? And I know you and I have talked about this before, but I think it's worth reiterating here. Well, I'll tell you what I think is happening. Um, and I'm always careful to, to differentiate what I think and what I know, because, you know, to really know why they're doing it, you'd have to talk directly to Becerra. Sure. Um, I think there's two things going on here. One is, I don't think Becerra likes the law. Um, I don't think that uh, the current administration agrees with it. Remember, this was a law that was passed under the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. Yes, it had bipartisan support. So it, it passed with a fair amount of Democrat support. But it's not something this current administration really likes. Um, I think Becerra doesn't like it because I think what he wants is the ability to have a prescriptive rate, the ability for the government to tell doctors, you will only make X dollars right. or only X percent of Medicare. And that's not what the law does. So I think he's sort of, um, for lack of a better term, he's throwing a childish temper tantrum. He didn't get his way and he's not going to do it. I also think there's a huge amount of lobbying that's happening on the behalf of the insurance companies because they know that if they've got to follow the letter of the law, it's going to cost them money. Um, and so I think you've got political pressure. I think you've got lobbying pressure. And I think you've got an administration that doesn't like the law. And the part that bothers me about that is there's a lot of laws I don't like, but I have to live with them. Mm -hmm. That's part of what happens in a democracy is almost anything that happens, you know, 49% of the people are going to disagree with it. Right. Um, and, you know, Becerra was put in a cabinet position not to make law. And mm -hmm. that's why he's 0 for 4 in front of this judge um, and likely to be 0 for 5 whenever TMA 5 gets filed. Right. And, and it's important to remember, too, just as, as and this is a whole other argument about political appointees, is that Becerra was not a healthcare care guy uh, before he was put in this position. He was the attorney general of California. 
So on the one hand, he's got that administration uh, understanding of how government agencies work, but he is not a healthcare guy. Um, he, he's it's not like when they put Mandy Cohen in charge of CDC, right. um, where right. she's someone who's familiar with government healthcare and, and how right. it's supposed to work. Um, he's not a healthcare guy, and he was never elected to that position. He's exactly. An appointee. And yep. so I, you know, and I get the whole appointee thing, but you're you're absolutely right in pointing that out. The other thing I would, uh, you know, that's important, I think, for everybody to understand is, you know, I talk to a lot of physicians who, you know, have a external understanding of TMA3, but they're like, I'm not a radiologist. I'm a, right. you know, I'm a rheumatologist. You know, why should I worry about this? Well, the reason you should worry about it is this is the first time that I can think of in any profession where in this country, the government is telling someone how much the maximum money they can make for the fruits of their labor. Mm-hmm. Um, because they're, they're basically saying it's illegal for you to do anything other than accept these reimbursements and an external party is going to tell you what that maximum is. I don't know of any other profession that's like that. Right. Granted in healthcare right now, it's really only anesthesiologists, radiologists, you know, ER doctors, air ambulance, um, that kind of stuff. But, what's to stop it from expanding? You know, it's sort of, sure, it's yeah. the same argument for why you, you know, if somebody says, well, I want to defend, you know, free speech, even if it's speech that I don't like, because I'm afraid of what happens once that, you know, that you break through that dam. And this is one of those areas where I'm, I'm, I'm very nervous about once the government, if they get away with this and then being able to ignore a law and just say, well, I'm going to tell you what you're going to make, where does it stop? Right. And, and to the people that question, you know, whether or not that that's actually the case, no, it's not an exact prescriptive rate, but it's the convoluted calculation of the QPA, and that in itself is a prescriptive rate based off of the markets. That, that these well, payers yeah, are. and the analogy I would use, you're right, it's not prescriptive. What if the government said, um, whether it's state or federal, um, okay, we're no longer going to enforce a minimum wage law. We're going to trust that these employers are going to do what they believe a fair minimum wage to be. That's a whole different thing. You know, you, you've just broken through something and saying, we're going to ignore the law. You could do the same thing on, on, on a number of other areas. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's problematic when the government and when they're supposed to have an enforcement role, whether it's the IRS saying everybody pay their fair share or something else goes, you know what? I'm just not going to do that. Um, what would happen if, you know, if uh, an entire state said, you know, we're not going to enforce murder, you know, we're just, we're not going to arrest people for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's just, it's a really, in my opinion, a harmful precedent, yeah. especially for an appointee like Becerra to be able to say this. I have in our show notes for the program, the question, well, it's got a typo in it, but what I meant to say was who benefits uh, and obviously, the big insurance companies are, are going to be the primary beneficiaries of this uh, guidance. Uh, just how big of a benefit are they getting? Well, it's, it's you know, nobody's really quantified it um, on, because we can't really even get good data on mm-hmm. what they're paying and QPAs, et cetera. Clearly, the big insurance companies benefit. Now, they would argue, and, and some of this may be true. Um, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt that that means that employers and consumers benefit. Okay, so I would completely agree that consumers benefit if you're somebody that's going to, you know, a hospital or receiving this kind of service, you don't get balanced billed. I I agree with the law in concept. 
aspect of getting the patient out of the middle. So that's there. And, and there may be some employer groups, whether they be self-funded or fully insured, that are also benefit from these lower reimbursements. Um, but then that begs the question, and clearly insurance companies benefit from a profit perspective. But then that begs the question of, well, at whose expense? Mm-hmm. Um, because if somebody's saving money, that money used to be somebody else's revenue. And that really gets to those professional radiology, anesthesiology, and ER groups. Um, and, and then what is the harmful side effect of that? Um, are we going to see groups pull out of hospitals? Are we going to see groups have a hard time attracting and retaining the kind of physicians they need? Um, because if you get rolling through the ER, you want a doctor to be there. And if you need to right. be rushed into surgery, you want an anesthesiologist there. Um, and you want somebody there to read that CT scan to find out if you really did have a stroke and can um, receive medication, et cetera. So um, if we start pushing too hard on those physicians, then just don't complain when they're not there when you need them. Mm-hmm. Um, let me, let me ask you this. Uh, it will, we'll get into to what the lawsuits might look like in a minute, but in the, in the short term, what is the landscape going to look like for ER docs and radiologists and anesthesiologists? Those who are going to be most affected uh, by this guidance. I think in short term, they're going to be in much the same boat they've been in for almost the last two years, which is a very difficult situation. Um, because of this law, payers have terminated groups so that they could force them into lower reimbursement. Um, They're refusing to negotiate effectively. Um, They're definitely refusing to give inflationary increases that are needed for these groups to, you know, again, attract and retain the kind of physicians that they, that they need. So for the short term, it's, it's at least another six months and maybe another year of some pretty rough, um, you know, rough waters. Um, That's what they can expect. Mm -hmm. And on the legal side of things, we've already had TMA3 and TMA4. Are are we getting ready to see TMA5 because of this? Oh, I definitely think you'll see a TMA5. I think that um, the Texas Medical Association will go back before um, Judge Cronodal and and ask him to um, enforce this. It wouldn't be the first time he's had to litigate something twice. Um, TMA1 and TMA2 are basically the same case, and the judge said it. TMA1, he vacated a, a, a guidance, asked CMS to come up with better guidance. CMS came up with the exact same guidance, and he and TMA2 vacated it again. Mm-hmm. So I definitely think we'll see a TMA5. Um, there's talk, and it'll be interesting to see if there's any direct suits directly to the carriers. Because once CMS said to the carriers, you have to do this using a reasonable interpretation of the law, it leaves them in some respects a little bit open for somebody to sue them directly and say, CMS told you to follow the law and you didn't do it. Mm-hmm. Now, what's their reasonable interpretation? Those get things get hard to, right. you know, to hash out in front of a judge. So I wouldn't be surprised what we're going to see multiple lawsuits. Um, this is too big for um, the medical professional let go. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think there's some interesting key takeaways from this, and that's that it, one, it, it, it's going to leave providers in the same boat that they're in now, what we just talked about. Uh, and two, one of the things I think was interesting from the guidance was that it pointed out that some of the payers had complained to CMS that it'd be too difficult to recalculate uh, the QPAs using the correct methodology, which you pointed out in a meeting effectively means that they're admitting that, yeah, we did it wrong before, and now we've got to go back and do it again. And I'm, I'm curious if you if what your comment might be on that. 
Yeah, that I mean, th that whole, hey, the payers can't do this. They would have to recalculate millions of QPAs and they don't have the resources to do it. First of all, again, it was it was humorous to me because it, it admits that they did it wrong because the only time you'd have to mm -hmm. recalculate them is if you weren't following the law to begin with. The second thing I find hilarious is somebody complaining about the payers not having the resources to do it. United Healthcare this year is going to make $20 billion in profit. Um, I got to believe that they could peel off just a small amount of that and, and find the computer resources to recalculate these QPAs. Um, and Cigna and Aetna and everybody else is in the same boat. So I, I just found it really funny that, well, we can't ask him to do this. It would be too hard and too costly. And, you know, um, the fact that they did it wrong in the first place shouldn't be held against them. It, it, you know, I, I wonder if I would have the same luck if, if I got audited by the IRS and they said I filed out my taxes wrong. If I said, well, I know I did, but it would just be too hard and too expensive to redo it. Mm -hmm. I don't think they would have a whole lot of sympathy for Matt. I right. think their answer would be, no, you go ahead and redo it. And they certainly wouldn't have a lot of sympathy for Bill Gates or somebody with a, you know, with a whole lot of money saying, mm -hmm. but I can't, that would be too expensive. Right. Um, but that's exactly what they're, what they're arguing. I, I wonder if, cause you, you'd also floated this out that there's the possibility that the entire thing might get thrown out. Do you think that that's a likely chance or do you think that that's uh, that's, that's a long shot? So I, I do think it's a long shot. And the reason why I think it's a long shot is from everything I've read, Judge Carnotal, who's had all four of these cases, is not uh, is a very reasonable judge, okay? I think he wants to, you know, uphold the law and he's into justice, et cetera. He doesn't strike me and I haven't read anything that, that tends to lead me to believe that he's one of these activist judges on either side who thinks he gets to make law. All right, now that being said, there is, I think, at least a decent argument that because of what CMS is doing here, they are in essence taking away the right of due process for these physicians because there's a law there that says certain things need to happen and they have rights in this process. And CMS is basically ignoring that and saying, no, you don't. You know, I'm not going to enforce this. I'm not going to do it. And so you can make the argument that CMS is taking away the right to due process. Now, it doesn't have to be a huge problem for a law to be removed by a federal judge if they think there's a constitutional right being infringed upon. Mm -hmm. If we look back to the Affordable Care Act, 2,000 plus pages of law, at one point there was a federal judge that eliminated it because that federal judge said this violates the Commerce Clause. That, and it was really down around the individual mandate, that the individual mandate violated the Commerce Clause. And because of that, and it couldn't be severed from the bill, that the, the Affordable Care Act was unconstitutional, the whole thing. Now, what he did, and I thought this was, again, intelligent, reasonable, he said, I'm going to immediately stay my ruling so that the Supreme Court can rule on this. And if you remember, the Supreme Court did rule. And in essence, they agreed with the judge that the individual mandate violated the Commerce Clause, except they said its real intent was to be a tax and the federal government can tax. So one could see a scenario where Judge Cronauta looked at this and goes, you know what, you're right. This CMS and what they've done has eliminated these doctors' right to due process. You can't eliminate that. It's a constitutional right. Therefore, the entire No Surprises Act is gone. I'm mm -hmm. getting it off the books. 
And you could see him say, but I'm going to stay this ruling until such time as the Supreme Court could rule on it. So it's possible. Now, I don't think Judge Canoto is going to do that. I think, if anything, he might suspend it or he might issue another ruling and tell CMS they've got to pay attention and they've got to do the right thing. But it's possible, and that's the nice part about being a federal judge. Right. You know? Well, and it's important to remember, too, because as we've talked about before, as provider advocates, we're also, uh, by extension, patient advocates. And the main one of the main purposes of this law was to protect patients from those surprise medical bills from when they visit an in-network hospital with out-of-network providers. Say in the event that the entire thing is gone, Judge Kernodal vacates the No Surprises Act, uh, and the Supreme Court agrees with him, and it's gone. I suspect that there will be some sort of movement in Congress to to fix the the problem of, of surprise billing. Um, but should the onus be more on the hospitals rather than on uh, the provider groups there? You know, if they're going to contract with a provider group, should it be on the hospital to make sure that the provider group is in network uh, rather than on the provider group's responsibilities? Well, so, it, it, you know, that in and of itself creates its own problems um, yeah. with some potential um, issues because the hospital sort of controls the workplace. Um, but the, to me, the, the, the really sad part of this whole thing is the answer is easy. Follow the law. Mm -hmm. The law itself was, you've heard me say this before, it's like, you know, it's an old joke, even a blind squirrel finds a nut now and then. This is actually, in my opinion, when it all was said and done and all the dust settled, I'm, there are things I would tweak about it. It's not a bad law. It protects consumers. It also provides a fair amount of protection for the providers. And it provides a pretty fair way to make sure that they're not being abused or under-reimbursed. And also to make sure they're not over-collecting. You know what I mean? And the whole IDR process, the whole idea of basing the QPA on the median contracted rate and allowing for inflation was really well-crafted. I mean, I, I'm, I'd like to hope that it was really a lot of intelligent people in DC and I, I'd love it to be that. And if it was just by accident, I don't care. It's a good law. So mm -hmm. the, the really sad part of this is we don't need to fix it. We just need to enforce it. Right. To just make it happen the way it's supposed to happen and we'll be fine. Um, but that's the thing is, unfortunately, the, the people who are required to enforce it don't want to do that. Right. Well, we are uh, just about out of time for our program today, Ron. Uh, as always, I appreciate you sitting down and talking to us about uh, this. I know this is a, a, a top priority for us at Fulcrum Strategies, as well as for our clients and all of the uh, emergency radiology and anesthesiology groups out there. So thanks again for sitting down with me today. No problem. Thank you. Miss an episode of the Flatlining Podcast? Well, now you can read a recap. Just go to flatlining.net and look right there on the homepage every Monday for a written recap on last week's episode.